Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 244 for April 15, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 90. Security Now is brought to you by GoToMyPC. For those of us who work around the clock, access your files and applications around the clock, too, with GoToMyPC. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMyPC.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you need to know about keeping yourself safe online. And here he is, our safety guru, the man in charge at GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, creator of SpinRight, the world's finest hard drive maintenance utility, and an expert on all of this stuff, Steve Gibson. Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. It's great to be with you again. That was a little more of a melodic opening than you normally I started give to sing. Yes, you know why? Quite enough. You probably don't watch this because there's no uh, spaceships in it. But I, but I watched this show called Glee, and it, it debuted last night, and I've been singing my little heart out ever since. I've seen commercials for it, and something, some guy with like doing an L, I guess, for, you know, G-L-E-E or something with his hand. But yeah, yeah, because they're right, the, no, you know, they're the, the Glee Club is the losers in the school, and all the attention goes to the uh, cheerleaders Okay. And the jocks and the the head of the cheerleaders is the evil villain in this show. And but the only real reason I watch it is because they burst into song fairly frequently, and I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so. Are you familiar with? Um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it. On HBO, where they do the same thing: two crazy guys. Oh, the um, flight of the Concords. Love flight of the Concords. Love, love flight of the Concords. I I, I just adore them. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well... Anyway, that's why a... I'm singing, I'm in the mood for song. Now, today we have a Q&A. You may ask, why, Number is, 90. Leo, why is Leo singing? <laughs> because I love Q&As. And Number not because it's tax day today in the United States, Ugh. April 15th. Nothing to sing about there, I'm afraid. Uh, although you and I both have finished our taxes long ago. Because... Thanks to having elves. We have people. <laughs> Thank God. 51 years of my life I did my own taxes and uh, finally I have people uh, people who do it all year that's the key right it's not like you're going H&R Block it's somebody who's collating this stuff all year and that's yes exactly you want to do it incrementally yeah. so I mean I've I'm sending receipts to Sue throughout the year and so she's presumably it's not some horrible thing you know at the uh, at the deadline she pretty much has our stuff yeah, done and ready um, you know and early in the in the year so that's good. Oh, thank you, thank you. So, so we've got a bunch of interesting stuff, great questions, uh, a mix of stuff. People talking about our subject from last week, of course, which was the SSL, uh, you know, security certificate problems right. with uh, state-sponsored uh, spying and so forth. S- um, SSL should stand for state-sponsored something. <laughs> Lawlessness, I don't know. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Um, but we've got a bunch of that and other stuff I think people are going to find interesting. This is, um, here we are on the 15th, puts, puts us just past the second Tuesday of the month. So, as always, 
We've got the Microsoft Second Tuesday of the Month security event as just behind us. Yes. Um, there were 11 bulletins issued which addressed um, upwards of 25 different uh, problems which Microsoft had flagged as both critical and important. Um, some remote code execution, some privilege uh, elevation problems. They were they were in Windows and Office and also some server components. Um, and pretty much most of the things we've talked about that were pending were fixed. That long-standing SMB, the server message blocks problem, has been resolved. You may, may remember that that was the problem where somebody, you could go to a malicious site that would cause your system to establish a file sharing connection to a remote malicious server, which could then take advantage of a vulnerability that had been discovered um, to execute code on your machine. So that's happily fixed. We also had, we've talked about before, the, the Windows help file problem where you could get a help dialog that would pop up with a little bit of social engineering. You would convince the user to press F1 and in doing so, that allowed a bad guy to run code on your machine. That's been fixed. Yay. Um, yay. Um, also, uh, MP3 files uh, had a problem which was not publicly known. It was privately reported, but there was a way that someone had discovered and then informed Microsoft that just going to a site and clicking on an MP3 link causing your system to attempt to play a file, there was a way of formatting that file maliciously Ooh. so that once again it would run code in your machine. Now that's a big deal because usually we say, oh, you're safe with documents. It's, it's only uh, programs that can install or infect your machine. Well, and and it's, we which is still true, but it takes a, it, But if the program is malfunctioning, what is the program that the player that's not working? It's Windows Media Player. <sighs> so it, it was a problem there. And, you know, we have seen, for example, malicious images. Oh, yeah. So, and we've seen malicious know, MP3s through Winamp. There was a flaw in Winamp. Yep. So this isn't the first time. It's just that those are rare compared to the other modes of infection. And Because yep. so, people are always saying, well, Leo, I want to save my data. Is it safe to save my data? And the answer is yes. But data can still cause a problem. Actually, this not strictly speaking, yes, because there's macro viruses too. Yeah, I would say that unfortunately, our uh, <laughs> what is the 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 domain of what is safe is rapidly shrinking, <laughs> and it really doesn't seem to be getting any better. Yeah. We're seeing, I think, just a we're seeing continual development of code, and as we've said, it's so difficult to be perfect. And right. to be secure requires perfection. Uh, you could argue we're not ever going to get there. So, right. you know, we're not ever going to run out of things to talk about on our <laughs> Secret Now podcast. I guess there's a blessing there. So, and I'm sure you heard that uh, the U.S. Federal Appeals Court dealt a blow to net neutrality. Yeah. Um, the What happened was, some time ago, the FCC sanctioned Comcast for specific handling of BitTorrent traffic. And we talked about this a long time ago. Comcast was was looking at their at their customers' traffic and dropping BitTorrent connections, which a lot of people got up in arms about, feeling that that was, you know, really not playing fair. The FCC sanctioned Comcast. Comcast sued the FCC, saying, you don't have 
the authority to regulate this aspect of our business. And it turns out that uh, initially um, that lawsuit uh, failed and then they appealed it and the U.S. Court of Appeals agreed with Comcast that the FCC lacked the authority to enforce what it was trying to do. They were relying on some congressional sort of broad sweeping. The FCC's rule is to make the Internet a better place and happier for all people. Or <laughs> You know, I got into a, 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 I've gotten into an interesting email exchange on this with a person who uh, is not a lawyer but who is uh, an expert in telecommunications. And he says it's actually more complicated than just, a, a, you know, oh, the FCC no longer has the right to weigh in. Um, so it's it's complicated. It's not quite as sweeping as I had originally thought. I agree with you. I thought, oh, this means that FCC has no jurisdiction over the internet. Not so, right? But it's not. It's it's shaky. And the problem is this district of court, this district of Columbia Court of Appeals is uh, historically just very anti-regulatory. So, so people go to them to say when they want regulations, government regulation overturned. My problem is that the the, the people who argue against net neutrality take the position that they're that we're in a competitive marketplace and that the people who the 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 providers who perform onerous filtering will lose market share right but you know i'm here in southern california and i i have no choice of there's cable no market provider. right there's exactly a, there isn't a market no, there's no competition at all and that's what know? comcast said is oh you see the market's going to be fine we don't have to worry and then they'd love that because <laughs> yeah. they have a monopoly in, mo- in many, 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 many markets, or at least a duopoly. So the, my correspondent, uh, whose name is uh, Christopher Mitchell, he's director of telecommunications as Commons Initiative Institute for Local Self-Reliance, said that uh, it's not so much a you can't do it as you did it wrong. The problem is, right. of course, they will have to go back to the D.C. And circuit every time right. and, and roll the dice on what the D.C. circuit says because it's kind of, they're kind of activist uh, judges there. Or get the legislation that, you know, That's what that makes this very clear. And he says, and I agree with him, if what we need to do is treat the Internet as infrastructure and Comcast as somebody, like water and power, and Comcast is somebody who is sitting on top of that infrastructure. Um, unfortunately, of course, it's not government-run, and we shouldn't be good government-run, I don't think, but it's private industry-run infrastructure, so it's complicated. It's the Wild West. Yeah. Even yeah, now, yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah, and, yeah. And, and the stuff we talk about here often demonstrates that. Yeah. Um, Adobe has now formally started telling users to do what we told our listeners to do last week. Um, you may remember that it was discovered that there was a way to cause PDF files to execute programs. And... Um, last week I instructed, I think it was last week, it might have been the week before, I instructed our, our listeners in the same vein as disabling JavaScript in, in Acrobat and the Adobe Reader, that they ought to go into the, uh, the options under trust, something or other, um, and disable the ability to, um, to have PDF files run executables. Well, Adobe is apparently now formally considering setting that off by default where it's always been on by default, which would be a big improvement. In the meantime, they're saying, well, just go in and, and, you know, (laughs) turn it off. 
because uh, it's a problem. Oh, and there's been a demonstrated functional proof of concept Ooh. worm created from this, meaning that you that documents could that it's possible to create a worm, meaning something that operates without any user intervention and spreads across the internet using PDF documents as its transmission Jeez medium. Louise. So I think that finally got Adobe's attention and they said, uh, okay, we think yeah. maybe we better turn this off. I mean, yes, I think so. Wow. Um, and uh, this, was a, this is a sort of a twisted uh, new approach on scamware. We've talked about scamware a lot. You know, the 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 XP antivirus dialogue that comes up and says your machine is infected, please purchase this. You know we've we've scanned your machine when and you've we we found a problem. Please you know pay us money and we will disinfect your computer. Well, there's now a Trojan called the, the W thirty two dot torrent dot A Trojan. That's what F Secure called it, which is getting into people's machines. And when they're running BitTorrent, it pops up a notice saying that that their system has been scanned and the transfer of copyrighted materials into their computer has been has been confirmed, allowing them to pay four hundred dollars in a pre-trial settlement to avoid further prosecution which would involve 5 years in prison and $250,000 in fines and apparently people are paying oh you're kidding <laughs> people are fooled by that <laughs> yeah i mean well they're 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 panicked they know what they're doing oh. is 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 you know violating copyrights and they've heard that these letters go out exactly and so it's interesting i mean this is a this is a social networking leverage it it takes advantage of them being aware that people have been have been sued they this notice pops up they don't realize this is different from what has happened to other people and it's like oh i could only i only only have to pay four hundred dollars as a and that's a pre-trial settlement and then i'll be let off the hook and people are doing it wow so wow uh, i'm so that's sad yeah that's just really. Yeah, I don't sad. know whether to feel sorry for them or not because yeah. I mean they they are using BitTorrent and they are you know moving movies around and music presumably and lots of big copyrighted things. So yeah, like, I mean oh, they're well. only paying because they're guilty. Yeah, yeah, I mean they exactly. feel guilty anyway, <laughs> or they think they're guilty. Yeah, they're scared. That's for sure. And then lastly, there's a new zero day flaw which has been uh, uncovered in Java. Ever since Java six update ten, which is about Ten about eight updates ago, um, there have been some additional utilities that Sun has packaged with the, the the Java installation, which it turns out has enabled a specially crafted website or specially crafted websites in plural uh, to download additional Java code into a machine, causing it to run local executables, essentially giving it all the kind of power that you don't want to have in visiting a website. Sun is being a little bit lackadaisical, saying, well, yes, we don't think that's that big a problem. We're going to just wait until we do our quarterly Java update. Hmm. So it's like, okay, well, let's hope that this doesn't actually start being a big problem. The good news is Java is, you know, unlike something like Internet Explorer, 
um, not installed in a huge number of machines. So the 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 size of the target is arguably smaller than it would be. Isn't for, Java on every machine? No, not not the whole JVM. Normally, you get that installed um, only when certain applications you know require it to be brought I see. along. So if if you've got if now, you're now, running Java, script. We're not talking Java. No, I understand. Yeah. Okay. But but what do you? Okay. So can you you need the JVM if you're going to run any Java application, right? Exactly. Oh, I think almost everybody has Java on their system, don't you? Yeah, I don't. I wonder what the percentage is. I I I don't. So really? Yeah. It's like on one machine of mine. I huh. Think. So God, I have it on everything, and I <laughs> it doesn't come with Windows anymore. It used to. It used to come with everything. I'm pretty sure it comes with uh, OS 10. Huh. And I'll have to check. I, yeah. <laughs> I thought everybody had the JVM on there. Because frequently, you know, if you, for instance, I mean, there's a lot of, if you use GoToMeeting, go to my PC, you're using Java. Right. Um, ah, that's interesting. I don't know what the what the percentage of deployment is. That would be interesting to know. Yeah. It used um, to be I, like Flash. Uh, it used to be everywhere. Right. Yeah. Ubiquitous. Ubiquitous. Um, I did get a nice note from an Ernie Moreau who wrote that Spinrite saved his vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, my name is Ernie Moreau, and I live in, uh, uh, wow, uh, Kel- uh, Kelowna, B.C., Canada. Yeah, Kelowna. Kel- Kelowna. Yeah. It's a silent W. Kelowna, B.C., Canada. This is just a simple spin right saves the day story. We, hey, we love them when they're simple. But this isn't that simple, actually. He says, I was vacationing in Toronto with my family. We were at Canada's Wonderland, an amusement park just north of Toronto, when I got the call. Quote, Ernie, the web server won't respond, unquote. <laughs> so I found a park bench and had my wife take Dylan, my five-year-old, to the kitty rides. While calming my boss down, who was on the phone, I asked him to do a hard reboot. It booted straight to a blue screen of death. Oh, no. At this moment, my training kicked mm. in. After listening to 200-plus episodes <laughs> of Security Now, I knew what to do. I told my boss, do exactly what I tell you to do. This is not a test. On my desk is a red binder. In the binder, there's a disk labeled Spinrite. Stick it in the machine and reboot. Run it at level 2. Call me when it's done. That's it, he said. That's it. I told him that it would take several hours to complete but it was a lot quicker than getting the next flight home. Yes. When he called me back, I had him reboot the system. Everything came up as it should, working perfectly. This allowed me to come back the following weekend when my holidays were done. Since I have the machine backed up 12 ways to Sunday, I wasn't too worried about the drive crashing again. The following Monday, just for to be just to be sure, I rebuilt the machine with a new hard drive. No worries. Spinrite saved my vacation. Thanks, Steve. Oh, and he says one last thing. I have an iPad now and love it, and would like you and would like your recommendations of which Peter F. Hamilton book to start with. <laughs> I would start with Fallen Dragon. I agree. What yep. a great book that is. The single book to read, not a super, not not a multi-volume set, and it's long. It's, it's not like it's a short book, but oh it's, yeah, it's I mean, a great it's, book. Yeah. It's wonderful. Like, yeah. I don't think Hamilton ever wrote anything short. <laughs> no. So, and yes. by the way, you won't be buying that in the iBookstore, I don't think. I haven't checked, but they have a very limited selection. You'll be There's buying it. There's nothing there. There's nothing no. there. But you're going to get it on Amazon, and the Kindle app is just fine on uh, on uh, the iPad. It's what I read I mean, most of my stuff is, Kindle. Yep. Exactly. Me yep. too. And then you get the benefit 
by the way, of, of being multi-platform. The iBookstores thing is, you know, you're done. But you can run this on a Kindle if you have one. You can run it on your iPhone if you have one. You can run it on your PC or your Mac if you have one. I think, what, what is Amazon's rule? Five, five devices? Um, is there a limit? I think there's it makes a limit. makes sense that there would be. Because I was thinking, now, now that I'm familiar with it on the iPad, I was thinking I would try it on a PC. I had never had an occasion yeah, to do so. Yeah, they I'm really impressed. It's great because... You you know and you know the whisper sync and the whole thing it's just it's just a better platform and I think it's kind of interesting that Apple allowed the Kindle app on there because it's a Trojan horse I mean it's really it's like I'm so is, glad though yeah well, I'm hugely glad you know this I think Apple's realizing that they can't be too draconian or people are just gonna rebel. And didn't we just also hear that they've allowed Opera? To- I, I never thought that would happen in a million yeah. years. That's a huge shocker. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm happy with Safari that's there, but I'd like to see if there's more features in Opera because I would like a, full, a really full-featured web browser on the iPad. Uh, yeah, well, first of all, it's not iPad yet, but yep. but oh, sec- iPhone. It's iPhone, and I have to say it's it is not more full-featured, but ah. certainly worth looking at. Okay, I wouldn't I wouldn't turn my back on it. It's free. Hey, let me talk about something else. It's free. Free to you right now, 30 days of go to my PC. I want you to try it because I think it is the absolutely the best remote access solution in the world out there. These folks at Citrix know remote access. They practically invented it. They do the big enterprise remote access. And go to my PC is the simple, easy-to-use consumer version of it that will run on any computer, Mac or PC, without firewall you know, confrontations, without port forwarding, without DMZing. You just install it. In fact, if you start right now, you'll have it done before I'm done talking. Go to go to mypc.com slash security now. Sign up for an account. You get 30 days free. Unlimited use. For many of us, our jobs aren't 9 to 5. You, we, we work around the clock, and we certainly need access to our office computer around the clock. There's just no doubt about that. Well, go to my PC makes it possible. Whenever you got a little spare time, you want to clear the inbox or finish up a project or just get a file, uh, maybe a PowerPoint slide that's missing, whenever you feel like it. That's, and when you travel, when you're on the road, it's a boon. In fact, it's a great way to surf safely, even from an, an open access point. You just fire up go to my PC. Surf off your office computer. It's SSL encrypted right to the office computer, just like a VPN. Try it right now, free, 30 days. Go to mypc.com slash security now, especially if you've got some travel coming up, but even if you just want to go home early. Go to mypc.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of the Security Now program. Steve, we have questions. You have answers. That's what you do best. Number 90. Great feedback from our listeners, and so uh, we'll plow through it. John Murky in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, starts us off. Should I say who he's with? Sure. He's uh, with the medical division of General Electric. Steve, I grit my teeth every time. (laughs) Every time you say SSL is broken, yet most of the time it isn't SSL that's broken, but the policies some have chosen to use to simplify our lives. So as an example, last episode, the problem with SSL server certificates this isn't broken SSL. This is a broken policy. I recommend SSL very often to protect healthcare. I'm involved in all of that stuff going on in Washington, D.C. around uh, healthcare IT. I often have to reverse misunderstandings. In addition, I have to point out that the recommendations that we're giving with healthcare to use multi authenticated TLS to a well controlled certificate or CA branch that is highly controlled following a system inspection and business agreement. 
This isn't just server authentication to a list that some browser vendor chooses. He has a site, Healthcare, Healthcare's, Healthcare Sec Privacy at blogspot.com. So this is a guy who focuses on this. Healthcare Sec Privacy at blogspot.com. Thank you, John. Yeah, and of course, I agree with him. He's absolutely we right. Have, yeah. we, we have seen a couple instances where SSL itself, the protocol, is broken. And we've covered that in excruciating detail and talked about how that could be exploited. But he's absolutely right that, you know, when when things like our discussion from last week happen, where we're, we're talking about the problem with with can we trust the certificates that our browser is receiving and and part of SSL is not only encryption as we know but is authentication then we're relying on the integrity of the certificate authorities to have to have appropriately verified the credentials of anyone they issue certificates to so you know, the the problem is that it's a sophisticated technology a sophisticated system and when we when we connect one way to a browser i mean to a remote server with our browser we're we're getting authentication we hope of that remote endpoint now he talks about you know in 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 his note there he says healthcare are are being are using mutual authenticated tls to a well-controlled certificate or ca branch it's highly controlled following a system inspection and business agreement. So, so he's, he's making very clear and, and I think properly delineating that if you have mutual authentication, meaning certificates in, at each end, whereas, for example, in our, in our browser server model, the, the client server model, where we're only getting single-ended authentication, he's saying mutual authentication using a a an issuing certificate authority that you know again that where where you have strong reason to trust and there's a lot of control being applied then there's nothing wrong with that and i would say absolutely true as far as we know we always have to say as far as we know because until we found out recently that you know ssl version 2 had a big problem we thought it was perfectly secure. Then we learned, whoops, that a renegotiation hack allowed some games to get played. So, so absolutely, as far as we know, the only problem that we were discussing last week involved certificates that we couldn't trust. The problem, of course, is that we want and arguably need to be able to trust those certificates. So, true, the technology is not broken, but as exactly as he says, the policies are, well, they're a lot more gray right. than we thought they were two weeks ago. Right. Yeah, and I'm looking at his blog. I mean, this guy, is, this is clearly his, uh, his bailiwick. I mean, uh, he's, uh, he says he's a principal engineer specializing in standards, architecture, and interoperability, security, and privacy for GE Healthcare. He's a Yay. member of the Privacy and Security Workgroup of the HIT Standards Committee and co-chair of the Security, Privacy, and Infrastructure Domain Committee. Of HITSP. And he's listening to this podcast. Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah. Actually, it's a good point, and I do wish we had brought it up, which is uh, it is possible to use SSL certificates safely. It's just the, the default that we use as, as browser users. 
we focus, frankly, we focus on consumer use most of the time. So the point is that it's possible to do it securely. Yes, and in fact, there's as you might have as you might imagine, there are a number of people had comments from last week's episode, and we'll be getting to them and cover various aspects of this. Yeah, so, Dan, thank you, John. You're yeah. exactly right. Um, SSL has had some problems, but you know, I don't want him gritting his teeth and wearing them down because <laughs> that's bad you know, for you. It's uh, and I'm glad there's someone like this who really understands this stuff, who's involved in in helping to form policy because. You know, I, I was talking to my own GP about who's got, you know, a whole room full of paper records and saying, uh, you know, this is all going to be going online here one of these days. And he just shakes his head and he says, oh, he says, I'm so worried about that. I said, well, good. Is he worried you know, about it from a security point of view or just the uh, cost? Security. Yeah. Ab- no, not absolutely. He, he's, he, he happens to be a techie. He was, you know, when we first met and were comparing notes, he was bragging about the size of the of the raid that he had at home for all of his media <laughs> oh, stuff. That's like, okay. <laughs> he is a techie. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Question no, ter- two. <laughs> I have terabytes. It's like, oh, good for you. <laughs> Question two comes from Nasko Oskov, uh, another security expert at netsecure with a K dot org. He's describing his project relating to subverting SSL. Stephen Lee, I want to let you know about a small project I started the moment the subverting SSL paper came out. I've collected some data on most widely used root certificate authorities, such that the list could be trimmed down to 20 to 30 CAs. He's actually posted the list on netsecure with a K.org. Uh, I've also started a personal project 30 days with almost no trusted CAs. Does he maybe mean untrusted CAs? Where I deleted all... Oh, no. He means no trusted CAs. I deleted all trusted roots, and I'm adding them one by one as things break. Ah. Yep. So he's seeing how... This how important this list of trusted roots is. So when he gets to a site that says, hey, I, there's no certificate, then he'll add that CA. I'm tweeting about each cert that I'm adding and will describe the whole experience of my blog. I'm going to inc- include guides on how to properly disable uh, these. By the way, removing, he says, is not the right approach. There's a better way to disable certificates, both in Firefox and Windows Certificate Store. I thought this might be of interest to you and the listeners. Thanks, NASCO. Wow, that's really neat. It is, and I, so I wanted to bring this to the attention of the subset of our listeners who wanted to take some action of some sort following last week's podcast. I mean, it generated a huge amount of feedback because people were upset by this, and many of them said, well, wait a minute. The problem is that you know Windows is implicitly trusting 260-some-odd different certificate authorities, I don't need to trust all of those. I don't need the Hong Kong post office to be in my in my certificate store, and I'd rather it weren't. So what this guy has done, and, and I would I would encourage our listeners to go to NetSecure, N-E-T-S-E-K-U-R-E dot org. Um, and he's he's uh, right on the, right there on the front page at this at this point in time. He's got an interesting list of the of the number of sites he went to, I think it was Alexa and got like all of the top ton of sites and then sorted them and analyzed them for who their certs were signed by. And so he shows a, a most number of occurrences to least number of occurrences, signatures of certificates that he's run across. At first I was surprised that VeriSign was like the first instance of VeriSign on this list that was sorted from most to least 
It was, it was like in the first, in, like in the fourth place. But then as I looked closer, I realized that there were many instances of VeriSign or, or their subsidiaries that were occurring in the list. Right. So if you added all those up, right. VeriSign is still, as we believed, the number one uh, issuing CA uh, globally. Um, but so he's done a lot of work with this. And I, I know that uh, a, a chunk of our listeners who want to do something uh, would want to pursue it. And the reason, for example, that deleting the um, uh, CAs, for example, out of Windows, the Windows Trust Store, is as we described last week, Windows repopulates it. Oh. If it's not in the Trust Store and your browser can't find it, Windows behind the scenes goes and gets it for you. So you want to disable it so that Windows won't replace it rather than delete it. And I'll remind people again that that Firefox runs its own set of CAs. That is, it brings them with it. And so it's independent of Windows, whereas the other browsers running on Windows, Chrome, Safari, IE, I'm not sure about Opera, um, they, they rely on the, the built-in windows security facility the windows trust store i think opera does actually because i don't think it has its own security engine uh, firefox and, Mo- and mozilla have nss which is this the, the the security technology that that all of the various mozilla projects are written on top of hmm. so his uh, his blog once again is netsecure n-e-t-s-e-k-u-r-e dot org if you want to find out more about that i'm interested in the technique for uh, replacing the certs. I think this is a, a good project. Somebody probably will end up writing a... I imagine it's a, a registry hack you could do this with. Question three comes from Mariusz S. Cybulski in Guelph. Recommending a better disposable email solution. Hello, Steve. Love your netcast. Congratulations on having the best security netcast once again. Podcast award winner. In 242, you talked about dispose a mail and how everyone can see the email sent to the disposable address. Well, how about this site, spamgourmet.com? It allows you to create an account that only you have access to and all over a secure HTTPS connection, not just the logon. You get to select how many junky emails you get sent to your real email account, which you configure with them ahead of time. You can have them send up to 20 emails, but can always reset if you need more. Anything you... Uh, past that threshold, more than 20, let's say, gets eaten by their servers. Best of, I guess this means to the address that you've registered with them. So if I register spam at spamgourmet.com, I can then tell Spam Gourmet, uh, I only want to see the first few that come to you after that, eat them. Is that, is that what he's saying? Well, let, is that let, your let, understanding? Let, yeah, I'll tell you all about it. Oh, okay. Best of all, you get to create a new email on the fly, which is automatically linked to your account with them. This is a great free service, and they also provide several domains, not just spamgourmet.com. You can select from a list. Helps if a company blacklists one domain because they're harvesting for your real email, and they don't like it when you give them a disposable (laughs) one, which, by the way, happened to him when he visited iCoke.ca. But the other domains, you know, they they add new domains all the time. All right, well, okay, how does this work? Okay, so this is cool. Um, They seem to be really good guys. They've been around for at least six years, so they're not just some new upstart. They're, they've, they've got an online, online forum with posts dating back to 2004. Um, 
And I created myself a, a persona there, and it looks pretty nice. The idea is, uh, okay, the the dispose of mails hook was that you didn't have to create an account. You never had to be known by them. You don't you even simply, have to do it. You don't even have to visit them. You can just do it. Right. You just, well, and the, the, but there's some of that here too, which is very cool. But, but in dispose of mail, literally, you just make up a something at disposeofmail.com and mail will go there and be accepted, no matter what the name in front of the at sign is. The problem being that if, for example, you use test, then anyone could put in test when they go to the website and look at this big bin of all the mail that's been sent to that account at disposamail.com. So there's absolutely no privacy. And unless you use really unique account names at disposamail.com, there'd be a high probability of collision. And even so, no, you know, no security there. So, so spamgourmet.com S-P-A-M-G-O-U-R-M-E-T.com is different. There you do have to do a little work ahead of time. You go there, put in a username and, and password in order to identify yourself to the, to the system. So you create an account. It's all free. Um, and again, they really do seem to be good people. They solicit um, um, uh, donations um, kind of quietly. There's, you know, it's not in your face in any way. And they don't send you other junk. So then you are able, without talking to them ahead of time, again, without having to like go pre-create accounts, you can, you can have any mail sent to anything dot your account name at spamgourmet.com. So say that, um, say that we, you, you created an account uh, called you know, Mickey Mouse. So you would give any other website, you know, XYZ dot Mickey Mouse at spamgourmet.com. And and by default, three emails will be accepted by spamgourmet.com with that prefix and will be invisibly forwarded to your real email address, which you also register with them. And after three, it will block any additional ones. So you get the, uh, oh, this is the account authentication email. You get the first couple or three or whatever. Because sometimes you do want the the emails from that address. Correct. Now, what you can do is, and, and because they anticipate this, by default, you only get three. But if you give them the email address, say it was XYZ dot. 20 dot Mickey Mouse right. at spamgourmet.com. That sets their counter oh, to, to 20 and it counts down. So it's not a setting, it's actually in the address. It, you, exactly. You could specify it at the time that you send, that you first send this address to someone else. And for example, you might want to say, you might say, like Amazon dot 10 dot Mickey Mouse at spamgourmet.com. So and so the the nice thing about this is that you would know where the email address had originated as well by the by the prefix that you put in front of your own account name at spamgourmet.com. Then and that that's sort of like the easy mode. There's then a like more control mode 
where you're able to essentially manage the database that this creates. You can see all of the email that, that has come in. You can reset the counters. And then there's some really nice features because one, one of the things you'll notice is that this would inherently accept anything dot your account name at spamgourmet.com. And they recognize, okay, that could be a problem if this got around because spammers could put, you know, they could change the prefix knowing that it was going to come through to you since you haven't needed to, to pre-create, that is to pre-enable these prefixes. So what you're able to do is you're able to put specify keywords which ha- or key phrases which have to appear in the prefix in order for them to... So you basically are able to create filters on the prefix in front of your name at spamgourmet.com. Anyway, it's it's. I wanted to bring it up because it is... I know that our listeners were interested in Disposa Mail. We got a bunch of feedback about that. So here's a slightly more sophisticated... You do have to set yourself up for it in advance, but um, I'm impressed by what I've seen. I read the FAQ that they've got on the site... Uh, it's all it's actually kind of humorous the, the their 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 fact page so if you know if you'd like to read something kind of fun um theirs is and it looks like they're above board i i would tend to trust them based on everything that i've seen so i wanted to bring it to our listeners attention much as uh, our listener wanted to bring it to our attention yeah it sounds pretty good sounds great and i'm sure there are many others i mean this is a a fun thing to kind of play with and implement, yep. and I imagine not too difficult to do. Oh, and if you don't want them to be doing it, apparently all the code is available ah, and you can, you can run it yourself. That I really like. Yeah. It's open source. Chris Clark, finally a name I can pronounce, in <laughs> Vancouver, B.C., and a town I can pronounce, is an iPhone, iPad developer and wonders about the iPhone's security model. Stephen Leo, you've spoken recently about the fundamental flaws in the design of our computers and operating systems with related uh, to security. I was wondering what you thought of the iPhone OS way of doing things. Applications all operate in their own sandbox without access to other apps' data and have fairly tightly controlled access to system data like uh, photos and contacts through the published APIs. Third-party software cannot run in the background and has to be cryptographically signed by the publisher and is vetted by Apple before being put up for sale in the store. This vetting process includes a scan for use of undocumented APIs and at least a cursory glance from a human to check that the app isn't actively malicious. The system isn't perfect, and those of us who work on the iPhone and iPad software frequently run into the walls of these restrictions, restrictions we've never had on a desktop. But I wonder if all this makes for a fundamentally more secure system, or if it's just security theater There have been well-publicized problems like the SMS hack, but does the lockdown App Store model save us from, well, everything else that's wrong with modern network computing? Thanks for a fantastic podcast. I've been listening forever. We'll continue for as long as I can, as long as you keep it going. As a computer science graduate and occasional dabbler in programming, I'm a designer by day, but I find the CS background really helps me interface with my programming team. I found the series on fundamental computing really enlightening. All the best, Chris. So... I think it is substantially more secure. We know that nothing is perfect. We know that, you know, there have been problems. For example, we talked about the problem that people encountered when they used jailbreaking software to open up their iPhones 
in order to install, essentially get around the whole App Store model and that a side effect was that a server was installed that allowed the spread of viruses and, I mean, you know, Trojans installed and all kinds of bad stuff. So, you know, it's still possible to get in trouble, but there just, there cannot be any question but that a, a, a beneficial side effect of the platform being closed as it is, I mean, there's, we know about negatives to it, um, but a beneficial side effect is it's fundamentally going to be more secure. And Apple would, it would certainly be reactive to any malicious app that is discovered if something snuck through their filtering and screening and, and, and checking. But you know, just the fact that they're doing all that goes a long way to c- compared to the wildly massively completely open platform that we have in in the windows and mac and and linux environments you know the the completely in the inherently you know free for all platforms you know apple's iphone ipad environment is by comparison you know radically restrictive and heightened security will be a consequence i you know i'm not saying it's perfect but there's no way not to see that this is no much more secure than an open platform would be and you know as we as time goes by and it becomes more you know right now there aren't a lot of uh, phone exploits there have been a few bluetooth snarfing and so forth but i think it's undoubtedly the case that as more people use smartphones uh that this is going to become the platform of choice for hackers or one of the platforms of choice they're always yes. on they're they're easily accessible because they're floating around and I think, in a way, uh, a very proactive approach towards security now will pay off in the long run once, once this becomes an issue. Yeah, I, I do regard the iPhone and the iPad as, as different from that standpoint. The, you know, the, although, of course, the iPad, once, it's get, w- once it gets the AT&T uh, 3G connection, will, will have a great deal of connectivity, too. And as we know... Uh, networking and connectivity is the friend of malware and viruses, right. so it does make it more risky. But, but a, a as, exactly as you say, Leo, having a a very you know lessons learned from prior yep. platforms approach and being really proactive as Apple has been certainly goes a long way toward toward controlling this. And I know from day one, uh, I remember when Steve uh, did the iPhone introduction. I know that they used the word security right from the beginning. So I think it was something that was built in to their original design. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's appropriate. I mean, when you're designing, you, you, here you have an opportunity to do it. You're designing a new OS from scratch, or almost from scratch. Well, uh, Why and, not? Yes, and we've also heard recently that a, a, a Apple is clamping down on the use of non-Apple development tools. And, and there again, by... By them providing the API, by them providing even the even the systems that developers use to create the apps, they're they're you know the 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 anti open source or, or the pro open source people are are you know less happy because here's Apple extending its control even further than the iStore you know than than iTunes and 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 the App Store out into you know, messing around with how developers create the apps, but that will again 
have it will there will be a beneficial impact on on security if yep. you can use any language and you know hash it down into an into some sort of an app that runs on their platform now that's more dangerous than if you are restricted to use you know their development tools which they control and, and have much greater say over i mean the, the, these i mean all the lessons that that we and our listeners have learned over the last four and a half years tell us this will be much more secure. You know, they didn't mention security. They probably should have when they were talking about this decision to uh, block third-party tools. Um, that's interesting. You know, it may be that Apple's kind of has a stealth uh, long-term strategy. They see a world which security becomes more and more important, and they may have the go-to platforms if they, if, if they start right now in, in locking it down. I read an article from someone in the last week or two that was arguing that this was sort of the end of the open internet that they you know this was you know closing the internet down and i'm thinking no 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 i mean the internet will survive and it will be just what it is this is a this is an arguably closed platform for accessing the internet but by no means is this, you know, limiting the Internet itself? Well, you're so. going to have Android. You're going to have other choices. I mean, there'll be Android tablets and people who care about that will have a choice. It's not going away. But, uh, you know, I have to say, when uh, given the, the choice between doing the politically correct thing and the secure thing with people like my mom, I want to choose the secure thing. Yes. You know, uh, and uh, that's very, you know, I hadn't really thought about this, but this really could be a, a, a significant long-term um, advantage to uh, to Apple. Yes, well, wh wh while Microsoft and Adobe, for example, continually flounder yeah, in just endless, yeah. endless problems with, with, with security, uh, Apple cruises along saying, ah, not a problem here. Well, it's a lot easier to do it with a new platform, too, because then yes. you don't have to support legacy. You can say, okay, let's do it right from scratch. I'm, I'm thinking now that probably was a, uh, a real big part of the of the spec for this new OS this iPhone OS is Apple able to reach out and yank mm -hmm. uh, malicious apps yes. back out they have a kill switch and wow, uh, that's very powerful that's scary to people and Apple has never used it but it, it's a scary thought that Apple might say for competitive reasons for any competitive reasons oh we don't want you to use Skype on the phone because our partners say we want you to use their cell phone software uh, they could use it that way they haven't used it at all. But boy, it is a great thing if you find a malicious application and you can immediately wipe it from all systems. If they're able to maintain the requirement that an app has to be cryptographically signed, if there's not a way to get around that, and I guess that's exactly Only what by the, jailbreaking. the jailbreaking does, yeah. exactly. If they're able to enforce that, that is, if, if a user doesn't jailbreak their iPhone or iPad and, and is willing to stay within those rules... Then, you know, imagine if Microsoft, by comparison, were able to just reach out and kill a Trojan. Well, you know, they, they don't have the ability to do that because there's nothing like this kind of grip and control that, that, that exists on the open platforms. Apple has that. And so I can see, yes, it's a mixed blessing in that, that as, as you say, Apple could kill off a competitive program. But to me, there's a tremendous advantage that if something was discovered to be malicious and arguably that that would probably surface very quickly for Apple to be able to just kill it off without throughout the entire ecosystem. I mean, even the fact that that ability exists, I would argue, militates against 
developers bothering to create something malicious because they just know it'll have an extremely short life. Right. The second it becomes known, it'll get killed. Really intriguing. I had not, uh, I knew about the security uh, features and I hadn't really thought of the competitive advantage that that provides. Question five, Dave Popovich in Port St. Lucie, Florida. He wonders, is the iPad safer for online banking? Speaking of which. <laughs> Hi, Stephen, Leah. With all the talk about the iPad, I was wondering how you felt about it being reasonable as an alternative for a dedicated machine for online banking. I'm currently using a Dell Mini 9 that is only used for banking and taxes. The screen is cramped and the battery is failing, and I was looking for a way to rationalize an iPad. Now I know the keyword above was dedicated, and obviously the iPad is not that. But on the iPad, with its closed environment, you can only install apps through iTunes, forget jailbreaking, and things like the Google Marketplace for Android. Would it be a safer alternative than using my regular PC that I use for everything else. I never get any this website wants to install something pop-ups on my iPod Touch, nor do we get those on the iPad. And you just get a, a Lego block that says, sorry, can't display Flash. Hmm. And there aren't any plugins for the browser. Also, the device has a lock screen for privacy. And finally, if it could be used, uh, then do you feel a dedicated application is safer than using the browser? As always, awesome podcast. I've been a listener for years. Thanks again, and I have not been sick since I began supplementing my vitamin D. Me too, by the way. I've avoided a lot of nasty flus that friends have gotten. He says, I don't take any allergy medicine anymore either, and my partner has been sick with the flu twice, and he doesn't take vitamin D. Looking forward to your response. Um, so, Very interesting. Uh, this is exactly what we were talking about. Yep. And we're, we're looking, and you know, we've, we've talked about booting from a a you know Linux boot disk in order to get a clean boot in order to do online banking um, I don't know um, whether he says online banking and taxes now as I understand it some of the tax prep software has gone browser based so that you're not installing an app locally uh, as far as I know there's currently no tax prep software for an iPad so you would be limited to what you could do with the browser, but you know the Safari browser on the iPad has caused me no trouble except except it won't run Flash, which is annoying. Um, but well, but, but now uh, you, you, I'm sure you're thinking you're happy about that too, from a security point of view, right? From a security standpoint, exactly. I mean, because they I mean look at the problems Adobe has with Flash. So right. I would argue absolutely. I, I mean, exactly as we were just saying uh, with the prior question. I think that the iPad, given that it is essentially a a purpose-specific platform that is tightly controlled all the way back up the chain to the tools the developer uses, you know, through the vetting that the apps get and the fact that they need to be cryptographically uh, secured and that, that Safari is, as he says, deliberately limited in not being plug-in land where you're... You're allowing all kinds of third-party stuff to be running in the browser. I think it's a perfect dedicated machine, and it's not very expensive. Uh, TurboTax, I just tried, requires Flash. Okay. Uh, there's a number of free online uh, tax preparation solutions, so I'm going to try a couple of these. But TurboTax from Intuit is not one of them. You know, anybody who listens to this show and hears, you need to install Flash to run our tax software, is going to run. <laughs> right <laughs> to install exactly our software where you're going to put in all of your private personal in flash i don't details. think so yeah 
So, um, you know, I think this is an interesting point. Now, obviously, the iPad's not going to protect you against security issues outside the iPad. Uh, Man-in-the-middle attacks, flaws with SSL, bad certificates, servers that are not secure, and on and on and on. But you're not going to have any bugs or beasties on the iPad itself, right? Um, you know, there's a little tiny lock up in the title bar of the iPad, of Safari on the iPad. I don't know whether that lets you inspect a certificate or not. Right. Um, so you, there, you may I'll be limited yeah. in your ability to inspect certificates. I mean, it is, it, it has the feeling of it's been sort of pared down and, and you've got the essentials of web browsing without all of the paraphernalia and bells and whistles that we're used to in a, in a fully mature open platform browser, but but yes, I mean for for visiting your bank and and um, and conducting uh, transactions, I think it's very difficult for this thing to get infected. H and R Block will not do it either. It's uh, you are using an operating system H and R Block Free Edition does not support. Ah. Uh, you know, I'll say one thing, and this actually just happened. My daughter had a party at our house. <laughs> And I left a netbook there for her to control the sound system with using the Sonos software. Uh, and somebody stole it. And this netbook, it's too bad because this is the one computer in my whole house that wasn't locked down, password protected and everything. Mm. It did have, I had used the browser to log on some sites, but I do use LastPass. So I changed, you know, the LastPass password. I changed so it couldn't automatically log into LastPass. I changed Google and my email passwords in case the email program, for instance, was automatically logging and things like that. Um, but boy, it really brings home a, a, a problem, which is that we, we don't think about a lot, which is if you lose the hardware, yeah. or a bad guy gets the hardware, think about, I'm going to do a little thing on the radio show. Uh, on this weekend think about what's on here and what if somebody if somebody malicious had access or worse took your hardware and had it at home what could they do and uh, now one thing on the ipad and I, I think this is a great thing it does have a four digit pin lock and it has a setting that if it's if the if after 10 tries the person doesn't guess it right erase all data wow nice so i immediately turned that on on this thing and erase all data because even though i'm using LastPass. You do, I have been letting the browser remember passwords, and that, of course, is the real one of the real threats. Then the email package remembers passwords, so that's a real threat. So I yep. made sure I pinned it and had it erase the data, and I wish I'd done that on the netbook. I think that's a very good point. As, as we've spoken, I have never traveled out without a laptop that has a fingerprint reader, and I, I always configure my BIOS and the hard drive to password protect the hard drive and the BIOS so that if somebody got the laptop, all they can do is low-level reformat the drive in order to push the password off of it. I mean, so... And I kind of mocked that stuff because I thought, oh, that's business people. I'm not going to do that. And then, and then this happened. And I realized, wait a minute. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's, that's me too. Yeah, I'm going to... I've been using my iPad without the pin lock, and I'm going to do the same thing, Leo, right, you know, next time I, I, I'm in yeah. front of it. I will add yeah. that. That's, that's a very good point. You, you, we forget, you know, how much we, uh, we put on there. I just I do want to make one note. Uh, you comment about vitamin D. I suppress all of our listeners <laughs> talking about vitamin D, but so I just want to just acknowledge all the people that have written and give me their numbers. There was one guy I read today who, after listening to the vitamin D podcast, he and his wife and his daughter were checked. All of them were low. His daughter was at uh, at eleven. 
Um, he was at 25 and his wife wow. was at 29. They're now taking 5,000 IU a day and the daughter 11 or 1,000 uh, uh, IU. And many reports of never having been sick since listening to the podcast and, st- and taking IU or t- t- taking vitamin D where, where like they've, they've were in this perpetual annual cycle of getting mm-hmm. sick every winter. Mm-hmm. And they went through this winter, this past winter without getting sick. And, um, and like people all around them had the flu and they would always traditionally have gotten it, but this time they didn't. So, you know, there just has been a tremendous amount of positive benefit from that. So I'm certainly glad I took us way off the range one week and uh, and spoke about it because yeah, me too. it's really been useful for our listeners. <laughs> and I, I'm one of those people who has not yeah. gotten sick. Uh, question six, John McCormick of Twin Falls, Virginia wonders, what happened to Shields Up? Oh, Stephen Leo, thanks for the always useful podcast. Over the years, it's grown to become a fixed and welcome asset to my life and vocation. But why and how did GRC and Shields Up recently die? Thank goodness it seems to be back now. Last week, when for several days I was unable to use the service because it claimed it was too busy, which I've never seen before, I started wondering what was going on. Tell <sighs> us, Steve, what happened? Were okay. you under attack? Um, well, self-attack. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Um, for a couple months, something had been odd. The The CPU had been going up to full saturation, and sometimes it would come back. Sometimes, sometimes it would stay there for hours, then drop back to normal. And normally, you know, all of the... We have a very simple server. I've got nothing heavyweight, no SQL, no... You know, all the code is mine. I'm not using active server pages or... Or anything other than just my own assembly language. Consequently, no matter how busy we are, the server is like at one or two percent of of processor utilization, like none. And so I didn't know what was happening. Well, Tuesday, the Wall, the the New York Times, uh, in their gadget tech blog, mentioned Shields up, and. Uh, I didn't really feel that or I wasn't aware of it. But what happened was the following day, last Wednesday, at 3 p.m., Lifehacker. Oh, interesting. Shields up. And all hell broke loose. Interesting. I mean, we just, we the, the, the computer, essentially the whole website just froze. I'll have to tell Gina this. She'll be very happy to hear it. Um, Erica was someone who did the post. I, I don't know Gina, but but I mean it had a huge effect. And um, so, but the the frankly the I've never seen this happen before to the site. I mean it was I assumed it was beyond buried. Yet I mean, and lots of people were, especially while we were the number one item there on Lifehacker. What I understand now is that about every hour they, they post something new. And so I began hoping that, you know, as we moved further down into history, this would get better. And I'd never had any kind of a throttle on Shields Up. I hadn't needed one, but I quickly write, wrote some code to limit the number of people who could be using Shields Up because that seemed to be the problem, even though it had never been a problem before. And you know, each of this, when you do a, a full um, service ports probe, that's a, a, a 
more than a thousand ports that I'm probing, and I do each one several times to make sure that a lost packet doesn't report that the a probe is stealth when it's actually closed or open. So because I, I want to make shields up very reliable. Anyway, so after several days, we were still having a problem, and I I found a um, some technology that Microsoft had put together, which allowed you to take a snapshot of the IIS server in its running state, which was exactly what I needed. So I did that. I analyzed what it said, and there was um, 16% of the threads running in the server were all being held up by one particular thread. And in looking at it, I suddenly had one of these, oh, my God, moments. Uh What had happened was I left my own developmental memory auditing code in the production server. Um, What I I did years ago to help deal with leaks um, where memory is allocated but is never freed Mm -hmm. is I wrapped the 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 allocation and free and resize APIs in my own monitoring, basically my own auditing code, so that when I stop the server, the, the instance of it that I'm that I'm developing on, it will tell me if any memory was ever allocated that hasn't been freed. And it tells me, I mean, it, it, it knows where the memory, well, how much memory was allocated and which allocation call allocated that block of memory. So it's complete auditing of my use of memory. And it's allowed me to have an end result that literally can run for years. I mean, it's very uncommon for for Windows, uh, you know, itself to be up for years. My server can be up for years and even the web server running under the Windows server just... It's it's a hundred percent leak free as a consequence of this technology, which just helps me catch my my forgetfulness, which is easy to do when you're writing really sophisticated stuff that's got threads going all over the place and you're allocating and releasing memory all the time. So what happens is it's never supposed to be in the production server because of the overhead of tracking all of that. But I'm I'm allocating and freeing memory at a high rate. And adding the the um, the auditing technology really slows it down. Uh. Well, what had happened was I'd left it in. I had, I had turned it on, and it had been running in the production environment for months. And I, so I was seeing something wrong, but not bad enough that I was I was able to really to track it down or motivated to pursue it. Or the problem would go away by the time I would you know see that what what was happening. So in this case, thanks to Lifehacker. Uh, they put enough of a strain on the server that I was able to track it down and remove it, and we've just been running perfectly ever since. Oh, so, that's great. So well, you probably well, wouldn't have been slowed down by Lifehacker had this. No, and in fact, I wrote back to Erica because um, I did put up a notice at one point. I mean, immediately said, we're, you know, we've been mentioned by uh, Lifehacker, and it seems that we're unable to carry the load. So first, I just turned shields off, shields up off completely, right. just because I needed the rest of the site to be running. And then, anyway, so I wrote to her and I said, "Hey, you know, thanks for this. Uh, in, first of all, thanks for the mention, but also it helped me find a problem that 
I don't know when I would have found it otherwise. <laughs> and so what I did was I added technology to prevent the auditing system from installing itself on the production server automatically. So I'll never have to worry about it happening again. Yay. So made things better. Brilliant. You're brilliant. <laughs> um, Mike King in question seven asks, he's uh, standing on the eastern shore of Maryland wondering about PDFs in the iPad. Can you give a report in your news group on your experience with the iPad so far? I can't wait for this week's Security Now Netcast podcast. A big question, can it read PDFs? So I realized that his email must have predated my lengthy description of my feelings about the iPad after my first few days with it last week. But I did want to, I want to take advantage of his question to clarify that I have found and I wanted to let our readers know that it is not necessary, and I'm sure you know this, Leo, to install that really nice app that I found called GoodReader that the iPad natively reads pdfs just fine yes that's right you know yeah. you can click on links in email if you trust the source of the link in the email well you can email yourself pdfs which i often you, do yes you exactly you it's a way of getting them into the ipad is you email yourself a pdf and then and then you're able to open it just with the you know just with safari that will open the the, the pdf with no trouble what you what you don't have natively except you know keeping email around and and email attachments is a is a, any kind of a file system right and so goodreader does allow you to create folders and subfolders and basically create a nice library of pdfs within its own environment so it it brings that to the ipad but i did want to make sure people understood that just as it came out of the box it was a very very capable pdf reader excellent uh, question eight, Brandon in Atlanta, Georgia is under attack. Having recently become married. Oh, well, that explains it. I've assumed <laughs> yeah. he, he says, he says that if it's just, ha it just happened without him having <laughs> exactly. to do with it, I have assumed the role of network administrator for a home. I've also recently found Twit and Security Now is far and away my favorite netcast. Security Now has made me much more aware of my network's vulnerabilities and many bad habits. My wife and I have in particular password strength. My question, however, is this. I was trolling my router's security log when I noticed several dozen entries that say found attack from IP address or another in port, I ported it or one port or another, and they all included the very same, they all occurred at the very same moment. Is this some automated attack from some random machine trying to find insecure addresses? How can I be sure my network isn't compromised? Should I be concerned? Because quite frankly, I am very concerned. Okay, so I just we hadn't talked about this for a while. I thought it was worth for Brandon's sake and and similar listeners to talk about what's going on going on on the net and router logs. Anyone who logs traffic to their IP is these days just constantly seeing random junk arriving at their IP address. I mean, these are packets aimed at them. Um, they're often to port 23, the Telnet port, uh, sometimes to 25 if your ISP is not blocking the SMT port, looking to see if there's a, if you're running a, um, a store and forward um, uh, SMTP email server. Um, and, I mean, uh, to 445, Windows file sharing, to see if you might have file sharing to open. I mean, just, there's just all this junk. Um, I coined the acronym years ago, IBR, 
stands for Internet Background Radiation. Because it's just that. It's just noise, mostly. It's not an attack. It's not really directed at you. Because if you do look at many more, if you were to look at many more than just your own single IP, you would find this debris is just raining down on IPs all over the net. So that's one form of the kind of debris that you find in your log. The other is actually a consequence of sort of overlogging that routers do. When you're surfing, you will have, when you're surfing the net, you, and just like going to random pages, we've talked about how the, the browser model operates, where you request the page from the remote server, you receive the page, that page has lots of assets on it, images, uh, advertisements, you know, flash things that are wanting to jump up and down and get your attention and all kinds of stuff. In order to show those, your browser it initiates a flurry of additional connections out to many different servers to pick up those assets. Now, when that's all done, your router will... will close or your browser will close those connections your router sees those connections close and it removes the nat mappings that existed temporarily to allow those remote assets to get back to your computer remember that with nat network address translation no external data is able to get in in the default case. That is, any packets coming in hit the router and die, making the router a very good sort of natural firewall. It's only when your router sees you behind the router initiating outbound connections, you meaning you, your browser, your email, whatever, that returning traffic is allowed back in through that same connection but when you drop the connections, when you terminate them, a well-behaved router will remove those the so-called mappings. It will remove the permission for those unexpected for those the, what were expected packets to come back in, making them now unexpected. Many sites will send back a final fin, a a finish packet after your router has closed the mapping. And routers that are tending to be a little over-logging will log those as attacks, which is why, for example, the way Brandon explained it, he got a flurry of packets from different IPs coming back to different ports all at the same time. It, may, it was very likely just, just after, um, I mean, that, that's what you would often see after a web page has been fully served. Those connections get closed. The router says, thank you very much. Those random scattering of web servers out on the WAN may send a few more last little straggler packets that really are not an attack. They're no harm at all. But the router says, wait a minute, this I'm not expecting this. Well, it's, you know, it was four seconds ago, but now it's not. It forgot. So it <laughs> so, yeah, it forgot. It so forgot. it logged them and it's really not an attack. So relax, Brandon. I'm glad that you're... Bad habits of password strength have been cured. Um, I'm sure you're going to be okay behind your router. My bad habits of not locking down my systems have been cured. <laughs> and I, by the way, I really did go with strong passwords this time around. 
once you use something like LastPass, you can have it generate really good passwords that are not memorable and remember them. And so all you need is a really good password for LastPass. And that, that you have to remember, of course. <laughs> I didn't for a while. I, I changed this all at about 2 in the morning when I woke up freaked out. Oh, my God, there's passwords on there. <laughs> not a good feeling. Question 9. Robert Hickman in Bristol, UK, suggests a possible solution to the SSL trust problem we talked about last week. In episode 243 of Security Now, you discuss the problem with the number of signing authorities that are trusted by modern browsers. As you, as you describe, when an SSL connection is established, the server sends its cert to the browser, which checks to make sure it's been signed by the signing authority that it knows about. If the connection were being proxied using the signed intermediate cert, the cert returned to the browser would be different, probably signed by a different authority from the one that's signing the website's genuine cert. Using this knowledge, wouldn't it be possible for a browser and or browser add-on to maintain a database of URL or IP addresses with its, the original signing authority for most sensitive websites like your bank and large e-commerce sites and so forth, your email system like Gmail. Using such a database, it would be possible to detect if the signing authority that a website is using changes and thus perhaps a man-in-the-middle attack. Obviously, this would not be a perfect solution by any means due to the vast number of websites and the introduction of an additional trusted party, though it would offer a workaround to the problem. Thanks for the excellent podcast. You know, this reminds me, we were talking about uh, Opera Mini. Opera Mini does exactly this because it caches sites so that it can squeeze graphics down and speed things up. And so, in fact, it breaks SSL. It, it'll provide you, when you use Opera Mini, with a certificate from Opera, not a certificate mm. from your visiting site. So it'll even cache SSL connections. I believe it does that, yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, And so anyone using Opera Mini would need to be aware that, you know, essentially you're completely trusting the people running that that caching, compressing right. brow, uh, server or proxy uh, with... I mean, all of your most private and personal details. That's that's my understanding, if, and I would love to be corrected on that, but that's my understanding. And I remember when this became an issue and people said, well, you know, you probably shouldn't use Opera Mini for banking and things that you really want to have secure. I remember that too, as a matter of fact. Yep. So to Robert's point, I didn't talk about an aspect of this paper, which we talked about last week, that involved their the, the, these... The, um, the, the paper author's creation of a technology to, to, to detect when this was going on. I didn't talk about it because I wasn't really impressed by the, the strength of their approach. They, they really designed it with an eye toward not having it false positive, meaning not having it alarm people when it shouldn't because they recognized that would be a really bad problem if it was it was going off when when it shouldn't and as a consequence of their deliberately conservative design it was easy to see that it could miss very big opportunities for exploit it's worth mentioning though i mean in this context there are for firefox a collection of existing add-ons that tackle exactly this problem in different ways. For example, one one solution would be that and there's a there's an add-on for that as they say. Um, if you first go to a site and you've never been there before, the browser will cache or hash the 
remote websites certificate and or certificate chain if if there's more than just a root authority that that signed the website certificate it'll it'll cache the whole chain and every time you go back it will make sure nothing changed well that's that's clever i mean it it means that that because we know nothing should change unless a certificate expires and is renewed and that only happens every couple years um so it says if i go to a site that i've been to before then make sure that the the chain of trust for the website certificate is the same as it was last time because that ought to be relatively static so there is a firefox add-on that does that of course it doesn't protect you if the first time you go to a a site that's being intercepted it's a rogue interception and so you get the 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 cert for the first time but there's a solution for that there's a different add-on which uses a an array of probes around the internet to check the certs that the website returns to them the idea being that your connection to the the malicious site may be hacked but different means of getting to the same remote server would not be intercepted in the same way and so it's a way of sort of getting multiple multiple attacks or mul- mul- multiple angles of approach to a remote server and seeing if they're all the same because they certainly should be if any of them differed then there's a cause for concern and and there's even another add-on that caches as far as it knows, valid certificate chains and your and this add-on will just check with that to make sure that that this sort of a sort of a centralized authority of these are all the the certificates that we know about from from valid servers, you know, make sure this is the same. So it's clear that this the notion of this problem has been has been explored before. Um these are you know uh possible solutions i'm i'm not particularly moved by them because i i mean i think the problem is we have a we have a fundamental problem with needing to trust the the veracity of the the chain that has signed the website and you know i guess these are better than nothing but uh, um i wouldn't want to generate a false sense of security from them yeah but I absolutely want to acknowledge all the people that wrote um, and just the other things that I had run across during my research that there, you know, there, there, there were various sorts of sort of semi workable solutions. I didn't write them down or log them or chronicle them. I'm sure if you put in Firefox certificate checker or just certificate something into your Firefox um, plugins search it will find those because it would all be about certificate chains um and you know some users may want to add that to firefox our last question steve from joe leo in lehigh utah he wonders about corporate cas corporate certificate authorities how does one know if they have corporate cas can these be removed by a user i guess he means like from his own company right 
Right. Will the browser still work if they're removed? What if one browser, Internet Explorer, for instance, has the corporate CA, but another browser, Firefox, for instance, does not have the corporate CA? Does that mean that Firefox would not be snoopable by the corporate IT department? Help me make sense of this. Okay, this is actually exactly like what we just described with Opera Mini. Opera Mini, as you were saying, would carry a certificate recognizing the Opera Mini proxy as a CA, allowing the the Opera Mini proxy to on the fly create certificates that the Opera Mini browser will will acknowledge. Um, it turns out that Microsoft really wa- I don't need, even know why, but but there is a facility in Windows that allows corporate IT to remotely install certificate authorities in the clients within the corporate network. So this facility that that Joe is worried about, I mean, is is sort of exists by policy in Windows. Um, the way to know is simple, though, and it is simply by l- looking carefully at the certificate chain. Go to any secure website from within your company. Go to, you know, https colon slash slash mail dot google dot com uh, to establish a secure connection to Google or https colon slash slash amazon dot com. Just get a secured connection to something outside your company and then do whatever it is your particular browser has you do to look at to inspect the page's certificate. Sometimes you can just right click on the page itself and check properties of the page or double click on the little lock icon down in 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 the in the tray. What that will show you is what we've been talking about, the the so-called chain of trust. And you be worried if it doesn't make it very clear that it's that it's directly trusted by by like Verisign, for example, it either it'll it'll be trusted only by Verisign, or it'll be trusted. It'll say like you know Verisign um, uh, trust authority, maybe you know like in a second step. But if there's anything else in line, if it says, for example, you know Ajax Plumbing Works is in is is an intermediate CA, then that demonstrates that there has been essentially that um, that there is an intermit uh, an intermediate um, certificate authority in line, and it will you know it may well be your own company that has that has is created this certificate. There are now many appliances on the net that for meant for corporate IT installation, which require that their certificates be trusted by the clients. We know that IE provides, I mean, Microsoft provides a mechanism for silently installing certificates into Windows. I mean, we, we talked about this this mechanism also where Microsoft itself has this 260-some-plus um, uh, authorized CAs that are delivered to your machine sort of on, an, on a demand basis. But anyway, the answer is um, uh, you can inspect the the chain of trust 
in order to see if anything looks at all suspicious in there. And also, he asked about what if one browser had it and another one didn't. Well, it's a perfect example. Firefox, if he were to install Firefox, it's when freshly installed, if Firefox was unable to surf out of the corporate network, then that would be another indication that something was blocking secure connections. What what would be very likely is that browsers would, the, the for example, IE, if, it, if your corporate network was using IE and you were able to surf securely with IE, it might be that the corporate firewall would deliberately block any attempts at direct connections forcing you to use the corporate proxy and its own signed certificate, in which case a browser that did not have, that was not configured appropriately for use inside the corporate network might not be able to get out at all. And so, for example, installing Firefox or some third-party browser, if you if you found that you couldn't get to HTTPS colon slash slash Amazon.com, then there's another indication that, you know, you're in an environment which is has been locked down and preventing any sort of, of I mean, true secure connection outside. They're very likely proxying SSL, meaning decrypting it and performing some sort of traffic analysis or filtering or inspection. I mean, maybe all for good reason. It would keep malware and, and viruses from getting into the corporate network over an SSL connection, which could otherwise not be filtered. But again... Um, it, it does mean that you do not have a, a an un um, well. It means that there, there's a man in the middle um, that may be on your side, but uh, he is in the middle, <laughs> able to able to look at your traffic. Just to uh, clarify on the uh, on the Opera issue, yeah. I went to the uh, Opera website, uh, and uh, this is in their FAQ for Opera Mini. Is there any end-to-end security between my handset and, for example, PayPal.com or my bank? No. If you need full end-to-end encryption, you should use a full web browser such as Opera Mobile. Opera Mini uses a transcoder server to translate HTML, CSS, and JavaScript into a more compact form. It's a proprietary form that Opera uh, uses, Opera Mini uses. It'll also shrink any images to fit the screen of your handset. This translation step makes Opera Mini fast and small, cheap to use. There, to be able to do this transcription, uh, Opera Mini server needs to have access to the unencrypted version of the web page. Therefore, no end-to-end encryption between the client and the remote web server is possible. So mm. there you go. Just so yep. you know. And that's from Opera's own page. So, Steve, another great 10 questions. Well done. Bravo. Thank mm. you. Um, and a nice hour and a half podcast i like it <laughs> steve gibson is the man in charge at grc.com you can go there to use shields up absolutely uh also now that it's back up and running now, now that it's running also uh a lot of other great software including wismo decombobulator don't shoot the messenger actually it is shoot the messenger do shoot the messenger and many other really great programs but don't forget the most important one steve's bread and butter Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility, a must-have if you've got a hard drive. Uh, Steve does also put 16-kilobit versions of the show up there, transcripts, so you can read along as you listen in full show notes, grc.com. If you want to get a question in uh, the next question and answer episode, which is two episodes hence, you can leave a question at grc.com slash feedback.
Yes, and please do. That's where we get the questions for our our even numbered podcasts every week. So we want to hear back from you. We do do this in video live every uh, Wednesday afternoon at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, which is 1800 UTC. You can watch that at live.twit.tv or watch the video. You can download the video and audio from iTunes and all the other podcast places. Just search for Twit or Security Now. We do have video versions available of the show now, I believe. Also, we'll be on YouTube at youtube.com slash twit in the Security Now channel. So video as well as audio of this podcast now available for download as a podcast or for streaming. And all of that's at uh, TWIT slash SN for more information. TWIT.TV slash SN. Steve, thanks a lot. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.